So today, as it says behind me, we are looking at prophetic power, and it was striking to me that I needed new batteries in my power pack in order to do this sermon. If I say something like that, it's meant to be funny, so just humor me and laugh when I, you know. Thank you. So, um, if you listen to this sermon, you also have to listen to next week's. And thankfully, because we are also online and it's all recorded, even if you're on vacation next week, you got to listen to that sermon. And it's not because it's going to be so great. I haven't made it yet, not sure how good it's going to be. It's because it complements this sermon, and I think we need both sides. There are so many things in in the Bible and in Christian faith where we, we got to hold two things in tension. So today I'm going to talk about prophetic power, but we also need to understand the other side of the story. And I'm not even going to tell you what it is because there's got to be some suspense for next week. So I'm not going to read a passage ahead of time because basically I'm going to tell you this story by reading it. Um, the passage on the screen already now is from uh, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, 1 Kings 16. We'll jump into 17, and the main portion is from 18. Um, so I will be skipping a few pieces, and if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app, it's always worth checking what the pastor doesn't read because those are the parts I don't know how to explain, and those are the ones then in the middle of the week you say, Pastor, I was reading the passage from Sunday, and you missed this part. What does that mean? And you keep me on my toes. That's part of your task. So to know the story of Elijah, we're going to start with Ahab and Jezebel because they are a um, particular set of leaders in the history of Israel. So Ahab, son of Omri, short pause here. If I were to ask you who's the greatest king of Israel, what would you say, people here? David. If you were to ask um, in that time who was written most about in the history of Israel, it would actually be Omri. More than Solomon, more than David. So from a uh, world political point of view, Omri was a great king. He gets two lines in the Bible. That informs us that the Bible is not quite concerned about how great you are in political, world political sense. It has a spiritual conversation to uh, give precedence to. So Abraham, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. That about sums him up. It's not good. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. All right. So Ahab is in the line of Jeroboam, which is the northern kingdom when the kingdom split. And in the northern kingdoms, if they mention Jeroboam, they're really talking about the fact that he took worship that was meant to be done in Jerusalem, he moved it to Samaria, and in the process um, split the worship and, and the allegiance of the people from God. And so they're always comparing to Jeroboam. Jeroboam was kind of the standard, and if you get worse and worse from Jeroboam, you're going kind of downhill. Jezebel was a foreign princess in fact, um, my sources, and again, I got most of this material today from Bema, so I highly recommend again, and more and more of you telling me you're listening to the Bema podcast. Um, I got a lot of this material from them, got to give them credit. Jezebel was probably a priestess of the Asherah worship. So she wasn't just a princess, she was a priestess. She was connected to that which was anti-God, anti-Israel, anti-Jewish religion. All right, and so Ahab, Bad enough on his own, he sets up Baal. He also marries Jezebel, who brings in the whole Asherah thing. And let me just put it this way. 
I'm not allowed in this kind of a setting because there's children present to tell you exactly what Baal and Asherah worship's all about. That's enough for you. If you, that interests you, you can look it up further. Listen to Bema. Um, I'll leave it at that. They were bad. So Elijah announces a great drought. Now, Elijah the Tishbite, and notice that we got a, an outline of who Ahab was. Elijah, you got to figure out who Elijah was by watching him in action. And boy, is action his favorite thing. Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. Now, who authorized Elijah to make this statement? You're assuming, since he's a prophet of God, that God gave him the word. But it doesn't actually say here, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Elijah, go to Ahab and tell him that there won't be any dew or rain. And so many interpreters suggest that Elijah actually didn't get a word from God to do this. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It is if you go saying things that aren't true. But Elijah here is actually calling on God to be the God who keeps up his own word. Deuteronomy 11 says, if you obey me, your land will be filled with water and you'll have great crops. I'm paraphrasing. And then it says, but if you do not obey the covenant commands that I have given you, I will shut up the heavens and there will be no rain. And so really what Elijah is saying here is, look, God, you promised that if people were disobedient, there would be the consequence of being no rain. I'm calling you on that because we need justice in this land. It's a bold, powerful statement by Elijah. The other reason we know that Elijah didn't get the word from the Lord to say what he said there is that the next verse, verse 2, says, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Now God's talking, and you'll see he's actually on Elijah's page. Leave here, turn eastward, hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I've directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So God's stepping in and going, you called me on this. The heavens will be shut up according to what I have said in, in Deuteronomy 11. And now you're going to need protection, and that's going to be my role here. And so he tells him where to hide. But one of the things that's been suggested that Elijah misses with his bold proclamation of this is God's will is that when he calls on a famine to affect Ahab and Jezebel and their followers, it actually, of course, covers the entire land. The story right after this, the one I'm going to skip, is about the widow from Zarephath whose son is dying because they have no more food. And Elijah does a miracle there to bring healing. If you look at the details of this, God tells him you're going to drink from the brook. And he says, I'm going to send ravens. And ravens are, of course, scavengers, which basically means you're going to get food that ravens are going to steal from somebody else so that you can be fed. Elijah seems to miss in all his energy and zeal that there's consequences when you make bold proclamations, when you head into battle, so to speak, like this, is that everybody gets a level of um, being affected as well. And then there's Obadiah. Obadiah was actually the, um, he was the, he was in charge of Ahab's palace, all right? So he was a high official. He was sort of like Joseph was in Egypt, if you know that story. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. He's working for Ahab as a devout believer. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, gives you Jezebel's character, 
Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each, and had supplied them with food and water. So this shows Obadiah's um, allegiance to God. And also is an important note because in a little while we're going to see Elijah's going to say, I'm the only prophet left. And in fact, he actually knows there's at least a hundred prophets who are hiding in this cage. Cage, cave. So as Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground and said, is it really you, my Lord, Elijah? Because again, Elijah's been hidden by God and the, the Holy Spirit apparently has been whisking him away so that no one can find him. Yes, he replied, now go tell your master, Ahab, that Elijah's here. And basically Obadiah says, no, because now you tell me to go and go to my master and say, Elijah's here. And I don't know where the spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go to Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Right? So Obadiah recognized what's been going on here. Nobody can find Elijah because the Lord is hiding him. And so Obadiah is terrified. He's thinking, yeah, I'm going to go to Ahab and say, Elijah's coming. You don't show up. He's going to shoot the messenger. That's what's going on there. So Ahab went to meet Elijah. Elijah promises to be there. And when he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Now recognize again how powerful Ahab is. Elijah, seeing him for the first time, this king, um, to whom he at least officially owes allegiance, says, I've not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's command and have summoned and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people. He basically tells him, you've got to get the people together. I've got to talk to them. And the striking thing is Ahab listens to Elijah. He's been allowing Jezebel to knock off all the prophets um, of God, but he still is willing to gather these folks together. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. And Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Now, I must say, I wish life was always so simple that you could say in any circumstance where we have a difference, are we going to follow God or are we going to follow other gods or ourselves? And we'd know the right answer. Oftentimes, life gives us opportunities where we are actually called out to speak with authority, with prophetic power, the way Elijah does in this story. But I want to caution you at least to recognize that it's not always that simple and that clear. That you should follow God, yes. That you should believe in Jesus, yes. That the Holy Spirit will um, empower you, yes. But the truth in difficult conversations is often something we need vast wisdom um, to discern. And so if the question is, as it is here, God or Baal, that's a good one. That's a simple one. It's God. If it's things where we're wondering exactly how do we deal with people in, in difficult circumstances that got brokenness in their lives, it's often a little more difficult to make that quick call. Just a brief word of caution on prophetic power. So then Elijah says to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, except for those under other hundred that we mentioned earlier in the passage. Hard to say because my job is to speak prophetically from this platform out of God's word. But prophets sometimes exaggerate. Prophets sometimes make a point 
with words where you're going, that's not exactly the way it is. Prophets also need forgiveness. Maybe I'm asking in advance for the next time I need that as well. Also notice that the prophet, when they're calling people um, back to God, their prophecy isn't always about this is what's going to happen next. This is my foretelling of what's going on next. Prophet's job is actually mostly to go actually look backwards. Go back to the promises that God made. Go back to Deuteronomy 11. Go back to what God has told you all along and hang on to that truth with all that you've got and recognize how you've strayed. Earlier I talked about the religion of Baal and Asherah. I can't give you the details as I said before, but it's actually strangely and powerfully and scarily enough a whole lot about what most North American religion, if you will, is all about. It's about power, it's about sex, and it's about, um, it's about profit. And so as we look at Israel's people who've been called to follow God and who've been brought out of Egypt with a, a mighty, by the mighty arm of God, who've been spoken to by God directly with the Ten Commandments, I think we often read that and we go, can't believe they don't just follow him. Why would they follow Baal, right? And we're going to see at the end of this story that, nah, spoiler alert, you've never heard this story before, right? So I'm not going to give you a spoiler alert what happens. But as we look at Israel and their ongoing and repeated desire to follow Asherah and Baal, recognize that that's exactly the challenge in North America for us. It's the, it's the lure of power. Um, it's the lure of things that draw us in over and over again, even when we recognize and know in our minds that that's probably not the best way for us to go. So get two bulls for us, he says. Let Baal's prophets choose one for them and let them cut it into pieces. I love this. He lets, there's two bulls and they're going to have this standoff, right? And he says, they'll get to choose their bull first because as we all know, there's really easy to burn bulls and there's really difficult to burn bulls. That was, again, one of those funny things where you kind of chuckle. Thank you, dear. There's not. There's no reason to let them choose a bull first. He's just saying, right, we're going we're gonna to set this up so that you've gone ahead of me. And let them cut it into pieces and put it into, in, on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood and not set fire to it. You call on the name of your God. I'll call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And now the people are no longer struck dumb. Now they're speaking. What you say is good. Good plan, right? Who doesn't like fireworks? Who doesn't like a good show, right? The people are probably actually saying, yeah, we love the Lord. We also like Baal and Asherah. We like all of these things. So, hey, if somebody can show us their power, we're always excited about that. We want to lean into that. This is true in church reality as well. I, I've experienced a fair bit of... Um, of power ministry, if you will, where you, where you see God working in power and in healing ways and in deliverance kinds of ways. Um, and there's something exciting about that. There's something that definitely draws us into that. And most people are going, I'm willing to watch that. The real long-term question is, what does that do in terms of changing how we act towards our neighbor, loving God and loving neighbor? People are willing to watch the show. What you say is good. So then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. There's no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they made. And at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. 
talked to this passage, about this passage with a few people this week, and someone pointed this out and said, I'm a bit uncomfortable with Elijah taunting. And I thought, one, I probably should have noticed that, but didn't. Two, taunting in football is a penalty. Taunting in probably any professional sport, any sport, is unsportsmanlike conduct. Is it okay if you're a prophet to taunt? I don't know about you, but when I have a difference with somebody, I'm hoping for that kind of line that's going to be the zinger that just makes them see, ha, I got you on that one. I know a little bit more about this than you, or I have a little better angle on this than you do. Shout louder, Elijah says. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. He taunts them. And all the Bible tells us right here is that that's what he did. Again, I'm going to caution us. No matter how right you think you are in the name of faith, how, no matter how prophetic you feel you've been called to step into a situation, be careful. Be careful. Whoever we are walking with, challenging, they are also God's people. Now, Baal is God's people. Baal is somebody else's God. Baal basically doesn't exist, as we'll see in this story. Sorry, I'm giving it away right there. There was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. What Elijah is pointing to is true that Baal's got nothing because Baal's basically an idol. He has no actual power. But being aware of how we speak and how we enter into these things, always worth paying attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. And they came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. He took 12 stones one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. So the thing to notice in this story is how much incredible energy Elijah has. Right? We don't know how many times he went up and down Mount Carmel. Um, he repairs an altar. Right? So when they say 12 stones, they weren't 12 stones. They were 12 stones. Right? This was an altar. It was something you could put a, a bull on. So 12 stones that you could actually put a whole bull on. He repaired that altar. Um, all the stuff that he does here is, is, is kind of high energy. He's, he's, he's moving in the passion that comes from knowing God's on his side, that he's in God's will, right? And so I think we need to recognize when we watch Elijah, we love this story. We love to see, we love to see the power. And recognize that what it is, is it's, it's that prophetic power that has Elijah going, what has God said in his word? What is his truth for my life? And then how do I live into that with all I've got? How do I enter in and act in this world that shows that God's truth is living in me? And it's not just something I say, it's something I engage in. It's something that shapes what I do with my life. And note he took 12 stones, one from each of the tribes. There's a representation. This is Israel's altar to God. It's, that, it's their altar that basically says, we will serve the Lord it's been broken down. It's in disrepair. It's been neglected. It's been ignored. It's a symbol, again, of Elijah saying, we've got to come back to where we were, to God's truth, to the foundation of what it means to follow him. 
And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. That's a lot. Let's go with that. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. They did it again. Do it a third time. Again, someone here, because I can hear you. Why do you think he told them to pour water on the altar? Okay, we don't know. We can run with that. Often we think, you know what? Baal's already been taunted. He's been shown to be incapable. So we're going to pour water on this offering. This is how I figured it and how I was taught it. Because God's so powerful, even a soaking wet altar with a bull, he can light on fire. But actually, if you think about it, if fire comes down from heaven, right, it doesn't need the added challenge of lapping up a little bit of water because it's fire from heaven, it's God. He's got enough fire and lightning, right, to make this happen. So then, why? Four large jars of water. Do you know what was going on again in this story, what it started from? It's a drought. There's no rain. They're on a mountain. You all know water runs downhill, so there's probably not a lot of water on the top of the mountain. This is another one of those up and down journeys. This is putting faith into action. This is an act of trust that Elijah's calling the people in. He's not just saying, hey, I'm going to do this and God's going to show you. He's saying, you're going to participate. You're going to be brought into this difficult conversation. Right? When we think about the lives of indigenous people, when we, we talk in the fall, we're going to have a conversation about LGBTQ and how we work with those things. These are really difficult conversations for the community of faith. And God just doesn't want you to sit here and say, Eric, you tell us what the right answer is and we'll agree or disagree. He wants us to be engaged in the journey. He wants us to do some of the hard work ourselves. He wants us to read some of the history that we need to read and, and look into how is it that I participate in your prophetic power of truth in this world. And notice it's four large jars of water, three times, that equals 12. Numbers are always important in the story of, of God. And so this altar of 12 stones now has 12 bowls of water or jars of water poured on it. And the suggestion is, again, my Bamer friends, that the reason they're pouring water on this altar is to recognize the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkoth, the, the um, feast that happened at the end of the harvest when they gathered all the harvest, they, they had a great big celebration, and during that feast... They would pour water um, in a hose or in, in, a, in a column on the side of the altar, and they would do that to sort of prime the pump for the next round of water to come. Because remember, what's going on here is this is a fight between God and Baal and seeing who's going to bring rain. And so to go to the history, to the story, um, to the feast, where they regularly in their usual um, cycle of feasts, would pray to God, pour that water in here, let it start, let that which began to drip lead to so much more multiplied rain that next year's crop comes. By the way, in John 7, Jesus participates in the Feast of Tabernacles, and that's where he says, probably, it looks like, probably on the very day when the priest would pour the water on the altar, Jesus cried out in a loud voice in that quiet moment. He cried out, if anyone is thirsty... Let them come 
to me. The ultimate power altar was, of course, the cross of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus Christ, where he showed that don't count on other gods, don't count on other powers, count on my sacrificial love, my pouring out of myself, if you will, in order to bring you to that place of truth and hope. They soaked it in water. They're priming the pump because this sacrifice was meant to be the start of the downpour of rain. And then at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. And when there's a written prayer in the Bible, lean into it, see what it says, learn from it. Lord, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Again, he's, he's looking backwards. He's looking to their past. He's looking to their roots in the covenant. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I've done all these things at your command. Right? Um, when we pray for healing for people, um, we do that, of course, because we want the person healed. But always recognize that the reason, the ultimate reason we want to see people healed is because it brings glory to God. Because you recognize that even Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the death, he died again. His, his time came, and, and he's no longer on this earth. And so when we pray for healing, what we're saying is, God, we want to see another sign. We want to see a, a power move by you that brings life back and shows people that you are God and that you have power. It's first and foremost for the glory of God. It's first and foremost to show that the person praying is a servant of that God. And it's also to celebrate, of course, the incredible gift of life that comes back then to the person for whom prayer happens. Answer me, Lord. We can be bold in prayer. Answer me, Lord. Answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. The Psalms are a great illustration of prayer because they pray boldly. They call on God to live up to what he's promised to do. He, they call for that justice that allows things to be set right again. We can pray very boldly to our God. And then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God! The Lord, he is God! I love that they fall. They fall. They lie on the ground. They are down in that position of submission. They're down in that position of recognition of the power of our God. And when we see something that is truly God, we need to find a way to have our, our voice, our mind, our hearts, our very posture saying, it's God. It's his power. It's his ability. He is our Lord. He is the God. He is our God. And then Elijah said to Ahab, because you see, it's not over when the fire comes. That was the big hurrah. That's the attention getter, if you will. So Elijah says to Ahab, go eat and drink, for there's the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink. Don't have to tell him twice, I guess. But Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel. Here he goes, high energy Elijah again. He's been at it all day. He bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees even further submission to God because he's recognizing again, God, you've shown your power, but the point of the power was a restoration of the land, a restoration of justice, a restoration of rain and hope and provision. Go and look towards the sea, he told the servant, and he went up and looked. There's nothing here, he said. 
Seven times, Elijah said. There's those numbers again, the full, fullness again. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. And the seventh time, the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. Can you imagine you've been in this battle as Elijah has? He's expended himself as fully as he possibly could. He's probably incredibly tired. And he's in this time of prayer. And he's asking God, God, thanks for the victory in terms of the fire. But the, the land needs rain. The land needs, needs rain. We, we need to be saved. We need to be set free. We need sustenance. And he prays nothing, and he prays nothing, and he prays nothing, and he prays nothing, and he prays nothing. Did I get to seven yet? And he prays, and there's just a glimmer on the horizon. I don't know about you, but if I see across Lake Ontario a little cloud about the size of my hand, whatever perspective that's in, I'm not expecting a rain shower. But in faith, because he's already said, he, he's already said, Ahab, by the way, it's going to rain. I hear it in the distance. He hasn't heard it yet. He hasn't even seen the cloud. And now he sees this small man-hand-sized cloud, and he believes, and he believes. There's such a tough dynamic when we are asking God to move in power for us to also trust. I know, I'll be honest, when I pray for healing, I fight the doubt in my mind. I fight the doubt in my heart. I believe God can do this. I don't know if God's going to do this, right? And to be able to say after all this energy expended, that little man-hand-sized cloud is going to bring rain. But Elijah does. So Elijah said, all right, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. It's going to rain. And meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose. A heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. And the power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. It doesn't say why God came upon Elijah for this amazing feat of being able to run really fast in front of a chariot. But I suspect, I suspect it was God's way of saying, the one in the spirit of the Lord goes first. He's the herald. He brings the message. Ahab is going there in his chariot. He is the king still. But Elijah goes there in the spirit and the power of the Lord just like John came before Jesus. And you know what John the Baptist said about Jesus? He said he's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Because Elijah has a few faults along the way. He's a, bit, he's a bit much. I think most of us would probably think so if we met him. But he was used by God to show that God has the power to do whatever it is that really needs to be done in this world. And I suspect you, like me, need to be reminded, especially at things like the end of a really long pandemic, that God is still on that throne, that God still has power, that God still wants to call us back to his truth and to our relationship with him. He wants to remind us that he has done many, many powerful things, none greater than raising Jesus from the dead, and that he still continues to work in our world today. The story of Elijah is really the story of our God. Elijah's name means my God is Yahweh. My God is the Lord. He was here. We are here. 
just make that simple proclamation. I don't know exactly how all the time. I don't know exactly when all the time. But I do know that our God's on the throne and he invites us with the very breath in our lungs to proclaim his name, to celebrate his goodness, to call out on him in prayer and to trust that he will keep his covenant agreement with us and do what it takes to bring truth and prosperity, the right kinds of prosperity and hope into his land through his people. May we know that truth deep in our souls. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, as you came in the spirit and power of Elijah and did many, many more signs that showed that God is near, that he's on the throne. Lord Jesus, you now sit on the throne and have sent us your Holy Spirit, that spirit of power, we pray that we would open our hearts and minds and open our mouths in prayer to ask you to come and move in our lives, that we would pray in faith, that we would act in faith, that we would speak for justice, that we would stand for truth. And we pray, Lord Jesus, come. We pray, Holy Spirit, come. Fill us and enable us and empower us and start by making us bold enough to step out in faith and to hope and to pray and to hold out our hands to receive. In all this we pray in your holy name. Amen.